0: Episode 18 of The Wizard Files, the special podcast interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. Joining us this time around is a man who worked at the Guide to Comics in the glory days of the 90s as an online assistant editor, we'll get more into uh, what that really meant, and has gone on to be a comics professional lettering books such as Invincible and The Walking Dead. We are excited to finally welcome to the show, Russ Wooten. Russ,
1: how you doing? Good, good. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been enjoying your podcast and your interviews with some of my former coworkers.
0: Oh, yes, and I'm sure they are anxious to hear from you. Now, speaking of which, you know, you were actually one of the earliest Wizard staffers to start commenting on our social media, along with Steve Blackwell, kind of dropping some tidbits here and there, for us, clarifying things. And in fact, you know, you connected us with Buddy Scalera to do his interview, but shied away from giving yourself the spotlight. So is this a sign of humility, Russ? Are you just too cool for the the Wizard (laughs)
1: Files? (laughs) I, I don't know if I've ever been too cool for anything, so I guess I'll i'll go with humility uh yeah i mean i remember at the i remember at the time when that came up is that i felt like yeah buddy was the the one to interview for that uh to really to get the behind the scenes of the online stuff so since he was there from the beginning
0: well here's the thing so we know you are in the podcasting world these days which is awesome but we want to go back to the beginning so we gotta know were you a comic book fan before working at wizard and if so how did you discover comics
1: yeah i'm a comic book fan and read it ever since I was a little kid. My first memories of comics, I had to be like four or five years old. And my older cousin gave me a stack of Spider-Man comics. He was, I guess, about 10 years older than me. Yeah, he had a stack of Spider-Man comics that he tried to sell in a garage sale. And they didn't sell or whatever, so he gave them to me. And I don't even remember reading. I don't think I could even read at the time. But, yeah, I was in love with comics from that point on. And then at that time, my parents were in a very religious phase. So they ended up tossing those out. <laughs> For religious reasons. And then a few years later, they mellowed out a little bit. My dad felt bad. So he was like, "Uh, hey, you want to get a subscription for uh, comic books? And at that time, I had no idea what a subscription was, you know, so but I remember distinctly him uh, being in his office, his home office and showing me this Marvel Comics ad for subscriptions. And at the time, I was a huge, uh, I mean, I was already a Spider-Man fan from the comic books and then from the Electric Company TV show. But at the time, my brother and I were really big into monster movies, like Godzilla particular because they would show them on Saturday afternoons on uh, one of the UHF channels this is in the late 70s and and so Marvel had their Godzilla title and I was said I gotta go with Godzilla so then I was hooked and then uh, after that subscription ran out they actually canceled Godzilla so I it was a no-brainer to re- when I renewed my subscription was renewed to Amazing Spider-Man and, when I, and the funny thing is the Godzilla comic book introduced me to the Marvel Universe at large because I don't know if you, you're ever familiar with that series, but it only ran like 24 issues. But the main antagonist to Godzilla was S.H.I.E.L.D. So I learned about uh, the Carrier and Dum Dum Dugan and all those guys. But then, of course, Godzilla fought the Avengers
0: yeah, you know, of of all people, Rob Liefeld was just covering his whole, you know, experience loving Godzilla, same thing as you, Saturday afternoons, getting it on the Godzilla, and yeah, explaining how he was integrated there.
1: Yeah, he's two or three years older than me, but he had, I don't know if you've ever seen on his like Instagram feed or something, hes in his office he's got stuff like these giant Shogun Warrior toys. And that was also another Marvel comic. For whatever reason, they didn't cross over, probably because of the licensing things.
0: Yeah, you would think they would have. I I, I had Shogun Warriors I grabbed for back issue bins back in the day, and I even got a toy from a garage sale. So, yeah, I, I experienced yeah, it, they're... even though I'm probably a few years younger than you. So
1: Right. It was weird because the Shogun Warriors toy line, I think it was Mattel, they had a Godzilla toy. They had Godzilla and Rodan. And so that was in the toy line, but it wasn't in the comics. But one of the cool things was in the in the marvel godzilla comic is they had their own giant robot and I'm, my mind is blanking on his name I red Ronan, say, right red Ronan, yes yes and he was basically a shogun warrior ripoff yeah and but <laughs> yeah that's but that's how marvel got you know they got their own kind of shogun warrior giant robot fighting godzilla in that but yeah that's it's funny because whenever i see you know rob stuff on twitter or instagram and so there's a there's a, a lot of similarities and you know he was he would have been that kid in my neighborhood who was a few years older and he had all the cool toys, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about this now. So yeah, obviously your own seduction of the innocent uh, destruction of comics came out on the other end, got to read Godzilla. Now, as you, Approached your career as you're getting into this opportunity to be hired at Wizard in 1998. Were you still reading? And how did that circumstance come about that you were offered that position?
1: Yeah, I was. I had a brief time in high school, I think was like in my junior year in high school, when I was like 16 or 17, I thought, well, you know, I probably should give up these comics. And I don't know if any girls are going to date me with, you know, <laughs> reading comics. And then when I realized they weren't going to date me anyway, I was like, well, I might as well go back to reading comics. <laughs> (laughs) Why give up comics if it's not going to help, right? Yeah, so there was like, you know, it was literally probably six months, but at at most that I gave it up, and then I realized I didn't have to. So, so I was reading comics for forever, and I was also an artist ever since I was a little kid. So, well, like most kids, but I I was one of the few that you know didn't stop drawing, I guess. So I was, I always wanted to draw comics or get into comics uh, professionally, but then you know when I went to college, I was. My pragmatic side, I went and got a uh, a fine arts degree, but I also got a teaching degree for art education. Actually, at the time when I was in college, late 93 or early 94, that's when I met Buddy Scalera online. And he and I were on CompuServe. You know, that was a precursor to America Online. And they had a comic book for him. And so he was on there. And he and I started talking because of I, I had posted a thread about the old cartoons magazine, which was a, uh, a magazine that started in the 50s or 60s. And it was all about cars and hot rods. And it was a black and white comic book magazine that was all geared towards car enthusiasts. Yeah. What, what's the name of that rat? Oh, you mean uh, you're thinking of Ratfink? Yeah, from, Ratfink. Yeah. Was he in there? No, he wasn't. Well, he might have been in some of the ads, but he wasn't. And when I was reading, because I didn't re- start reading until the 70s, but I'm pretty sure there was at least some ads for some of those t shirts back in the 50s because, you know, there was a. Uh, Big Daddy Raw. And he was a hot rodder, but also a cartoonist. You know, he created that. Yeah, he created Rat Fink, the hot rod. I don't know what you'd call him. He's a crazy looking rat. I think it was probably some sort of a response to Mickey Mouse, too. But that's where that magazine started from that whole culture, you know, the car culture from the 50s and stuff. So Buddy and I connected there and we kept in touch over the years. And then I want to say in 95, well, I started using AOL because at the time CompuServe was doing it. You paid by the hour so in aol's big thing was they had unlimited that was a no-brainer switch well and then i found out wizard had an online portal on aol and i had just started picking up wizard because i didn't read wizard from the beginning i thought it was just a price guide because you you know you at the time you couldn't flip through the magazine because it was in polybag all the time right so it said the wizard the guide to comics and and it you know they always touted their price guide and so I was like, "Eh, you know, but around 95 or so, I started reading the magazine. And then I so yeah, I discovered wizard on AOL at the time you could upload, they would have like wizard magazine had this whole section and AOL actually paid wizard for the content. Right. I later switched, but at the time, so they would have these libraries and you could upload artwork or something right or different you know whatever it was just you know like, like fans just uploading stuff and they had message boards and stuff which i wasn't into as much so i had uploaded a drawing or two and this guy uh, emailed or messaged me and was like hey i want to put together a little group you want to join in and we there's like five or six of us now and we're gonna what we were thinking is we all draw the same character and upload it and then just you know see who gets the most downloads for bragging rights and so the first character we did was madman awesome wow and some of those guys and buddy buddy actually took notice because we were getting a lot of downloads we weren't that good i mean i was like finishing my uh, my college career but it wasn't like we we didn't look professional but we were you know we were just having fun with what we were doing some you know some of us were better than others but and buddy took notice so he he would sort of talk to us and he would sort of encourage us to do upload more and we ended up calling ourselves cafe dna i think the dna stuff was for you know the x-men or whatever but several of those guys actually have gone on to work in comics and some of them are still are i mean most notable is tony moore you know the original artist and co-creator of the walking dead and so tony was just starting his college career at that time and i was just finishing mine and then there's other guys like rob Nikolakakis, sean van Bryson, who who's still doing work with the creeps i don't know if you've seen that magazine it's a horror magazine and some of these guys oh christian colbert he's he's been done some stuff with marvel but that connects to the wizard stuff because rob and i were both up for the same job at wizard and i think i was just more willing to take a low paycheck than he was <laughs> so what happened was at 97 buddy was like hey hey guys i know uh Some of you guys are good designers as well as artists. And he said, we're going to be transitioning to the World Wide Web because I didn't know at the time, but AOL was going to start charging, you know, Wizard Magazine for content instead of the other way around. Right. (laughs) And everything was moving to the web anyway. But he realized we got to get our stuff on the web. And they had a rudimentary website. You know, it was one of those really basic. It was just kind of almost a landing page. You know, it wasn't really much there. And so he's like, look, we're going to be redesigning it. Can I hire you guys to do some freelance design work? I had taught myself web design in 95, I guess. Uh, I had a summer off, my first summer off in college for years. And I learned web design because I, I didn't like what the CompuServe little web designer thing could do. And I realized, I looked at the code and I, and I had done some basic programming in high school. And I was like, oh, this isn't that hard to understand. But that's how I got into web design stuff. And then, so we were doing, and Buddy would just, he didn't really have a budget. So he would pay us with comics. He would send us, A box of comics once a month or so. Nice. I think it's it's
0: worth mentioning to maybe some younger listeners just how specific and valuable web design was at that point in the 90s. Because nowadays, like everybody can do that pretty much, or you just go and you get to WordPress and you just move this right, right. But back in the day, like I I had a friend that you know during that same era when I was in high school, and he was like you know this hot shot kid in town because he could design websites for all the local businesses that he went on to create his own firm and you know, he's been doing that for the better part of 20 years, you know, so it's like, if you could do that back in the day, yeah, you were definitely on people's radar.
1: Oh, yeah, that was a big thing. I mean, I made some extra money in college with that, too, Mm -hmm. you know, doing just freelance web design stuff. And it was so basic back then, too. I mean, it didn't seem like it at the time, but you look back and it's so it's just really basic stuff. Early 2000s, people were using HTML code on their MySpace, you know, just to customize it. But yeah, at the time, in the mid 90s, very few people knew new web design and so i was lucky enough i had a class in photoshop in college but it was just a kind of introduction so i kind of taught myself how to use photoshop as well and then you, you know you if you could do photoshop and then you've got a text editor and you know the html code you can design websites so yeah that's what i did i mean this was before javascript and all that stuff i think that was just sort of starting but then i want to say late 97 early 98 we had done some stuff they they'd redesigned the website the website now had a message board and buddy was like hey russ my assistant editor is is moving on he's going to marvel and i wanted to know if you'd be interested in working for us and he's like we're talking to rob i don't know if he told me he was talking to rob nikolakakis but I, uh, i i either heard that from rob or from buddy but yeah i knew i wasn't the only one up for the job and i had finished college and was just kind of doing freelance design stuff and web stuff and then a little bit of cartooning and even some comic book coloring for a small press publisher. I did everything from substitute teaching to uh, – I was a dispatcher for a while too. Anyway, so my, my thought was, yeah, it's not, it's not a great – paycheck but it's a you know steady paycheck right and then i figured that also could introduce me to some people in the comic book business so yeah i mean the only thing that was that that held me back or, or gave me pause was i was living in tampa at the time and i'd been there you know i'd been in the south for most of my life so it was moving up to congress new york was not a uh, appealing you know especially thinking <laughs> thinking about the winter but that was the only thing that was holding me back was really the winter the idea of the winter and rob is, an, is canadian so moving would have been a bigger hassle for him too so it just you know it just worked out where i ended up taking the job like you said in the introduction this online assistant editor or i think it may have been my first business card might have even even said assistant online editor it was it was like kind of went back and forth i don't know what it it probably depends on when you know what issue of the magazine you look uh-huh. at the best. but basically i was the web designer i mean i did, I did some copy editing and stuff but i wasn't Really, an editor in in the conventional sense of the word. Yeah, like I'm actually curious to
0: know how much communication was there between people like yourself and then Steve Blackwell or Arlene So, who were working inside the magazine, versus what you were trying to apply to the web presence of Wizard. So, what what was kind of was there trying to be a synergy, or were you just doing your own thing?
1: The office politics, for whatever reason, were such that the online thing was separate from Wizard editorial. We were actually and buddy could correct me on this but i believe we were actually under the marketing department oh Uh, eventually the web stuff did switch over to a part of editorial but that was after buddy and i were already gone so we were under marketing i think at the time because that's how that's just how the higher-ups saw it they didn't really see the web as a content sort of thing Mm-hmm. And of course Buddy and I had been online since the early 90s so we definitely knew better than that you know we we knew the potential of the web for content so there was also some con- there's some tension between editorial and the online stuff because we would sometimes scoop them with an article just because, well, you know, we learned something. Hey, let's put this up. Buddy would give me articles to post throughout the day, and I would just, you know, design them, do some sort of a graphic for it, or use, you know, go over to research and ask them if they could pull up, a, you know, a photo of a creator or something for me, or like a specific cover or whatever. But it was really weird. I mean, I got along with pretty much everybody there, but I know there was just tension just because, you know, at the time, too, you had the magazine, they're like, well, shit, we were going to run that. Article in the next mm-hmm. issue. You know, so it was just a weird, because it's that weird time of the transition. And I think every magazine was probably going through it. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about every magazine wizard, I'm just talking in general. I didn't really work directly with Steve and Arlene and the other designers, talk to them, and sometimes, you know, get help with assets or something. But We sort of had our own look for the website that was kind of separate from the magazine. I mean, other than the the logo, we used the wizard logo, everybody knows. But Mm -hmm. we sort of had our own look. Some of that was because of just the limitations of the web at the time. And then some of it was just because, well, this is kind of our own thing. But each magazine had its own kind of section on wizardworld.com and for that section we sort of tailored it a little bit towards the sort of look of that magazine but you didn't want to do a whole lot of graphics back then anyway just because of download times you know we're talking people were still on dial-up
0: yeah that, that's what i was just gonna ask like how long did it take you to scan and then actually get something uploaded and then how could somebody see it
1: <laughs> yeah we had a very fast fast connection we had a t1 connection i guess at wizard but it was you know screaming fast for that era Uh, I think broadband these days is faster than that, whatever the T1 was. But yeah, most people were on 14 4K modems, you know. And then I think, you know, maybe 28K and then they were going up to the 56K. So they were getting faster, you know. And then I even remember not long after I started, we switched from the kind of the web resolution of like 640 pixels wide to an 800 pixel wide which was like oh because that's the new monitors right the new (laughs) the new monitors on computers are like 800 by 600 or whatever you know so it's like oh we've got all this more real estate but then you realize oh no we kind of don't because we have to still keep in mind that people are there's a lot of people still using the older monitors
0: and on your side for you like as you're putting all this together doing the design and things like that like you said you're still reading comics you're still a fan were there like fanboy moments like was a favorite project just from a personal perspective like oh this is so cool we got to put this interview up or one of those particular stories that might have scooped the magazine or anything like that that stand out to you yeah
1: the one where we scooped the magazine that i remember that sticks out i don't know if you remember this but this was 99 it might have been 2000 stan lee was going to write some comic books for dc comics and he was going to do his interpretation of the origins of characters like superman batman yep i have those in my long box love them yeah and so that was a huge story at the time you know there were websites like newsarama we had some competition you know so we had to start really doing some online content that was going to scoot the magazine or we would just be left in the dust and at that time the website was making a lot a lot of money for wizard entertainment in what ways just selling stuff out of the warehouse through the website we had two revenue streams that i can think of specifically the advertising we had a lot. A lot of advertising oh. on the look kind of a little sidebar would have these little ads uh everything from a wizard credit card to some other things yes <laughs> but the big thing was i want to say the company was things from another world it could be another retailer but it was a big retailer and they had not a bit they were pretty big online comic books and toys and stuff like that what they did was they sort of licensed the wizard name. So there was a wizard store that you could buy everything from wizard merchandise to action figures and other things like that.
0: Was that only online or was that a physical store too?
1: It- well, they, they may have had physical stores, but we did, there wasn't a physical store related to Wizard Entertainment. Oh, okay. Now, Garib's parents did have a comic book store, but this was separate. Yeah, this was a a partnership that they we had for a while, uh, and so we would have like daily deals that I would have to create an ad for every day that would be like, oh, here's the new thing for. But nobody actually at Wizard did any of the retail stuff. That was all, they, they were licensing Wizard's name. Interesting. Between that and then the advertising, it brought in a lot, a lot of money. And it was like one of those things where I'm like, wow. When Buddy told me later, I was like, yeah, we should they should have been paying us more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true, yeah.
1: That actually led to think to how things changed down the line.
0: Yeah, well, well and let, me, let me ask this then, you know, because obviously, yeah, you I mean, those day-to-day things, that's kind of fascinating. And you said, even though you guys are kind of off in your own little world there, you still got along with everybody, you know, on the editorial side, on the magazine side. So what do you remember maybe on the more after hours types of shenanigans or just fun times of relaxing with everybody? Like, what 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 kind of uh, events did the Wizard offices have that stood out to you?
1: For me, unfortunately, the first two years I was there, there. I had to drive an hour each way to work just because it was tough to find a place to live close to the office. So I didn't do a lot of after-hour stuff for a while. I'd get done and you know, they were like, hey, we're all going to, you know, get some drinks or we're going to go check out of this movie. Or we're going to go do, do this or that. And I'm like, man, I'm beat. I got an hour drive home. <laughs> I'm going home. But then when I moved, when I finally did move closer to work, it was like 15 or 20 minutes away. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a much different story than, the, you know, we could hang out after work and go grab some drinks at the bar. There was a group of us that would do movies probably once or twice a week. You know, so we're always seeing the newest thing. It didn't matter if it sucked. We were just going to the movies, you know. And who was your crew?
0: there that you could
1: recall. It was weird because Buddy was on the second floor and I was on the first floor because I'm disabled and use a wheelchair and they didn't really trust the elevator, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> I went up and down the elevator a couple of times, and it was it was not little yeah, rickety, was, huh? <laughs> it, little rickety, yeah, it was more of a freight elevator. So we sort of joked because there's the upstairs people and then the downstairs people. Upstairs was more like business and marketing and accounting, and then the VPs and, and Garib was up there, and downstairs was. Um, all the editorial and design stuff they were like we've got this sort of area it's sort of like a cubbyhole off the main hallway where they had the light table and the main printer in the office like we'll put russ in the corner there you know we'll give him a little wall so he's not you know staring at everybody when they come to make prints out (laughs) so then i was able to meet and make friends with people downstairs that i may not have been able to you know otherwise yeah but like when i first started meeting people i remember was like it was may and it was like one of the first warm days of may and for me for as a floridian it was like in the 50s that was chilly you know but they were like hey it's sunny and it's in the 50s let's go let's go to the park and then that wednesday taco bell wednesday buddy was like hey russ I'm not going to do lunch today, but Taco Bell Wednesday. So, some of the guys are going to meet you by your van and you're going to go to Taco Bell. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I would take breaks and sort of go around the office, and it was probably annoying to my coworkers, but I would stop and say hello. And hey, what are you guys working on? You know, <laughs> just because I was, you know, kind of stuck there alone, and they all had right. like each magazine had like a little group of people, like three or four people. Yeah, and you're hiding behind your partition there. Yeah, right, exactly. Now people would come by and say hello. It was funny because they would come to get printouts, and as they're waiting for something to print out, they look over the little wall. You know, hey Russ, how's it going? <laughs> and I can't <laughs> tell you how how many times I had people ask me, "Do you know what's wrong with this printer?" I'm like, "No, look." I'm the web guy. I never print anything out. I don't know what's (laughs) wrong with it. Because they're like, it's Printer's jammed." you know what's wrong? Nope, no. Nope. Check the toner. I don't, know. <laughs>
0: I don't know. So let me ask you this. Ned, then: What was your favorite part of the job then as you're working in it? And did your role evolve over the years? Or was it just as the website is changing, you were changing the website? Did you ever get into any other side of the production uh, on Wizard?
1: You know, when they would come up with new magazines, because sometimes they would have specials and stuff. So we would come up with new sort of new sections of the website. But one of the things that we had, Buddy and I had fun with was the Wizard School. And that was actually actually wizardschool.com and it was kind of just an offshoot of the wizard wizardworld.com where we would have pros that would do tutorials for writing and and drawing and stuff and so that was that was a lot of fun because we would do professional sketchbooks where we would just you know the pros would just send us in some scans of their sketches so it was just a lot of fun to sort of design that And have some freedom there that was like something different than just posting articles and creating a you know graphic for it well you guys did get
0: highlighted once though right because there was the internet issue
1: buddy and i actually did that little article together which i i saw that recently i think i actually might have seen it when you guys posted it yeah but i was like oh man i forgot about that i think that was close to the end of buddy's run And it's really – it was weird because it was like trying to tell somebody how to make their own website, but then it was just sort of like – here's how kind of how we do an article or something. It was really kind of weird. But the article itself, it wasn't very helpful. As I look back, <laughs> it was it was more kind of nuts and bolts. It's like I think the title was how to make your own cool website. And I'm like this isn't very cool at all. <laughs> but yeah, see, that was the thing is that was uh, because that was about I would say 2000, probably early 2000. And that was when the internet bubble hadn't burst yet, and it was sort of at the height of the internet craze, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the magazine actually was like, yeah, well, what don't we do? We're going to do a whole online issue. I think we actually got paid for that, too. Like, you know, a freelancer's rate or something like that, you know, which is kind of nice because, you know, we did it during work hours, but I got extra pay.
0: Yeah, it's a good deal. You know, somebody who might have been involved in uh, making that decision, always looking for the hot new trend, we have to ask here, Russ, Garib
1: Sheamus. Cool or fool? (laughs) I don't know if Garib would be considered cool in the conventional sense. (laughs) He's certainly no fool. I mean, look, I didn't work a lot with Garib, but my interactions with him were... Pretty good, you know. And he was a big supporter of the website. And even early on, when some of the others at the magazine were like, "Why do we need this?" You know. But you know, he put together. And one of the reasons I say he's no fool, he put together a magazine. And early on, he really surrounded himself with some amazing talent. You know, look at Pat McCallum, Ryan Cunningham, uh, Steve Blackwell, the design, and there were some other designers there who were before Steve, but also did some freelance uh, with Steve Atzer. But You know, they really took the magazine from the early days so that by the time I was reading the magazine, it was the kind of wizard everybody knew. You look at the early issues and you're like, wow. Look, it was more like a fanzine at that time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, did I agree with all of Garib's business decisions? Well, of course not. One of the main ones, which is why Buddy ended up leaving and then why I ended up leaving like a year later was they kind of spun off wizardworld.com into its own thing, its own company. It was kind of a, it's kind of a no, it's own company on paper because they, what they were trying to do was let's capitalize on this internet thing. But you know, as I said, Buddy and I were like already like, wait, this whole internet bubble is about to burst. They were somehow able to get some venture capital funding but what they wanted to do with it was completely antithetical to what we were doing and that wasn't all gareth's decision but there was some other people involved with the business where it just went it just became it became more retail than editorial retail and they were trying to kind of focus on the collecting side of comics and they wanted people to come and track their collections and stuff the big decision i don't know whose decision this was it wasn't buddies or mine but the big decision i think that hurt the website at that time was the elimination of the message boards which what they didn't realize was that had gave people a sense of community and brought people coming back to the website every day which is another reason why it brought in so much money so what happened was you know the higher-ups at wizard saw the money we were bringing in as a website and you know we're at the height of the internet craze and let's see how they can capitalize on it and it just went in a direction that went away from what made it interesting and also kind of away from wizard itself you know the whole idea of fandom and and being indicted about the content of the comics and the toys and stuff like that and it was more about why don't you collect and keep track of how much your collection's worth and and it was like what? you know (laughs) they did kind of steer it back they actually moved the wizardworld.com offices into Manhattan and I didn't want to commute to the city that was just going to be a nightmare for me so they were like yeah you could just stay, stay at the wizard offices in Congress I did that but I also worked from home as well but you know they finally got some good editors with Maureen McTeague who is a writer she also used to do some work with DC Comics she was an editor over there and so she kind of steered it back toward what it was with the along with her assistant editor i think was nachi marsham and he was he used to work at wizard in the research department then he was so he worked with maureen and they were sort of the editors and then i was just kind of at that point just web design for me, it was the, the fun was taken out of it.
0: And so let me ask you this. So what is the question I'm not asking about your time at Wizard? As we've got through all this stuff, you know, we're getting down to your final days here. What is your ultimate Wizard story or what do you like to tell people about working there?
1: The way I look back, I, look, I made some lifelong friends there. Buddy, my friend Mike Fasolo, who you interviewed just recently, as well as some others who I still keep in touch with to this day. And that's, for me, that's the personal thing. That But at the same time, I also was able to interact with some uh, comic book professionals uh, just through some of our interviews or some, you know, things. And that's where I met Chris Eliopoulos and how I got into lettering, too. So that was the thing for me that, you know, I'm not but I'm not the only one who went on to work Professionally in comics, it's real easy for people to sort of dismiss Wizard as this kind of smarmy sort of boys club weird look at the comic book. And it was some of that, but it was at the same time it was also one of those things where people... Who at the time had the fandom or the, you know, readers, fanboys, readers, collectors, whatever. You know, they had a place where, you know, people were like, hey, we're not just a bunch of dorks. This is fun. And we're kind of cool. Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> at least it was fun, right? You know, I remember Frank Miller hated Wizard right. at one point, And there was uh, DC Comics. There was also kind of always sort of an antagonistic sort of relationship with dc and wizard because wizard tended to cater to marvel and and image uh and well valiant in the early days and stuff and yeah so i mean there's a lot of valid criticisms of wizard but at the same time there are a lot of talented people who came out of there who went on to work you know there was a, a lot of people on staff at dc comics who came from wizard people at marvel comics who came from wizard in editorial and you know guys like jim mclaughlin who went on to work with top cow or Mel Kylo who worked with Top Cow and is now a writer at Netflix and I mean you know there's I could go on and on and but even just myself I never really planned on lettering comics as a career you know I thought I was going to be drawing comics but after I left Wizard and was freelancing again Chris Eliopoulos who I had met through Buddy because he and Buddy are friends and then but we did a little article on him with the Wizard School wizardschool.com and so I got to meet him and he actually got me some work. Judd Winnick was doing a new creator-owned series, The Adventures of Barry Ween for Image Comics. And it was a black and white book, but they needed somebody to color the covers. And Chris, Chris had seen some of my coloring work and stuff It's like, hey, you should get Russ to color these So then later, when I had left Wizard Chris was like, I've got more work than I can handle right now With Marvel And I want to know if you want to help out Because I know you're freelancing And I know I know your design sense And your artistic ability And also your work ethic So if you want to help out I can teach you how to letter comics You know, and then see what happens And then a few months later He started virtual calligraphy And took over a bunch of Marvel's books And I've been lettering comics full time ever since
0: Wow. Now, So tell us about
1: this, because like you
0: said, you were focused on the art and now you're brought into this new world. So what is the importance of this unsung hero of comics, the letterer? Like, how does your work influence the experience of reading a book?
1: I always appreciated lettering. I had done a little bit of my own just because I had done some cartoons and comic strips in college for the school paper or whatever i always had a, an appreciation for lettering itself and interest in typography and stuff because my dad was in advertising as i was growing up so i was always fascinated with graphic design advertising typography but anyway i knew that lettering comics was important and a tough gig it's one of those things where as a reader i would always notice when lettering didn't look right to me i couldn't maybe explain why but then when I started learning how to letter with Chris, I realized, wow, this is this is much more difficult than I thought it was. You know, now, I mean, now nowadays, because it's all done on computers, it's very much kind of a graphic design thing. But it's also storytelling. And that's what people kind of forget is that especially when people want to make their own comics is they think it's going to be easy, you know, lettering. Oh, that's easy. I can just do it myself. Right. I'll just get a font and I can do it myself. It's really much more important to the storytelling than people May realize even longtime readers of comics they don't don't realize it and in fact as much as I mean I think the colorist has become such an important part of comics as well and better printing and since the 90s in some ways the letterer is even almost more important i mean think about it unless your comic book is silent without a letterer you can't tell the story and a good letterer can really put the polish you need on a great comic book and you can have a great comic book and you put a shitty letterer on there and then people will just go this just looks amateur and it could it could be the best artist you know you could have Stuart Immonen and you know Kurt Busick doing it and you have a shitty letterer i mean people are probably still gonna buy it <laughs> <laughs> but it's gonna, be, it's gonna be. They're not gonna enjoy it as much, and the experience won't be as good. And they're gonna know. They're gonna like this. Something's wrong with it. They may not even. They may not even know it's the lettering. And the thing is, it really comes down to. And I've learned this over the years. The more indie stuff I've done, is that you know, it's really a lot about choosing the right style to work with that particular story and art you know i kind of wanted to look like the artists themselves did it you know and that's probably not every time but a lot of times you know like if you if you look at something like invincible you know the balloons are much more uniform they're not all circles because it's very much influenced by john workman's stuff his 80s stuff on the on thor or even his current stuff really i mean because you know depending on the books, john workman has that really kind of nice clean ellipses and stuff you know, and see, that work, that works on some books too because it works perfectly for like Invincible, but I also used it on all of the Invincible books that were in the universe, so it sort of ties those books together. Then, on something like Fear Agent, Tony Moore would be working on it, and then Jerome O'Pena would do another arc. The lettering was the same style, so it sort of kept. A familiar feel to it. And now actually working with Rick Remender, we're doing that now on his, his book, The Scumbag. You know, he's got a different artist each issue, but the lettering style is kind of staying the same.
0: Yeah, it feels
1: like a lot of people
0: don't think about it, yeah, like you say.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons, though, I, I ended up working with On the Walking Dead. You know, I met Robert because I met, I knew Tony, and I think it was in 1999. I met Tony in person and Robert for the first time because they had a booth promoting their book Battle Pope, uh, which was a self-published book they were doing. So then years later, when Robert asked me to take over the lettering on Invincible and The Walking Dead, he's one of those guys who is a writer. And people also don't know Robert's an artist too, although he he gave up trying to be professional comic book artist and and focused on his writing. But he knew the value of good lettering. Like I know that like the font that we use for the sound effects on Walking Dead. That's one of Chris Eliopoulos' fonts. Anyway, but that all goes way back because Chris Eliopoulos and Eric Larson are good friends. And Robert got into comics, or at least got into Image through Eric Larson. I've been lucky to work with. Especially since I stopped doing stuff for Marvel and focused on indie books, I've been lucky to work with several creators who have a, lo- a love and appreciation for really good lettering. You know, I do all of Robert's books, all of Rick Remender's books, most of Jonathan Hickman's creator own stuff. When he doesn't letter himself, because he does some of his own lettering, depending on the book. There again, see, Jonathan Hickman is, is also an artist and a designer. Rick Remender is an artist. People don't, don't always know that he started out as an inker and a cartoonist himself. I'm never surprised when I find out, like other letterers that are kind of, I would say top tier letterers in the field, you, you find out, oh, wow, they've actually got these other artistic skills as well. Whether they're artists or just really good designers, I mean... It's fundamental, for sure, especially the design aspect of it. But I think the lettering, yeah, it's underappreciated. But at the same time, there are pros who know the value of it. And it it pays off when they get a good letterer to do it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So this has been very educational for us, just like for many of us reading the magazine or when you were doing wizard school online, all of those things. Like, these are the types of things sometimes we need to be reminded of or our eyes need to be open to. So as we're closing out here and you're looking back at your time at Wizard, you know, a lot of your work obviously was digital, but did you keep any mementos, or do you have any swag that you picked up in the warehouse back in the day? Like, is there anything you have that reminds you of Wizard?
1: I used to have a bunch of stuff, but when I first started there, I remember one of my first days, uh, there was a writer, Scott Beatty, who's actually done some work for DC Comics uh, as a writer, but the reason I remember it is because he came by, introduced himself, and he's like, hey, you know what? We need to get you some action figures, and so, he. He talked to uh, Donato, the warehouse manager, who was one of those jack-of-all-trades. That was just one of his titles. but And he's like, hey, Donato, can you help out Russ and get him uh, some action figures and, and some copies of the magazine? So I had a shelf set up in my new office there, office area. And Donato was like, sure. And so Donato comes back later in the afternoon. He's got every issue of Wizard up until that point. Wow. He had also gotten me every action figure that Wizard had sold. You know, they, they used to sell the, the, the special Tony action exclusives yeah yeah toy fair exclusives yeah so he got me every single one of those and he's like do you want anything else i've got this Plenty of stuff I can get you. <laughs> I'm like, no, I think this is good. This is good. <laughs> I have my own little reference library with all of the wizard issues and all the action figures. And then of course, when a new when a new toy would come out, we'd all get at least one of them. But no, I didn't keep them all. I did keep them for a while, and then I eventually moved back to Florida, partly because I was broke freelancing. This was before I started lettering, and then also the winters are just brutal up there. And I ended up giving a lot of the action figures to like my little cousins and stuff. And I don't. I have a couple issues of wizard one of them I keep because it's got a photo from the first Halloween Wizard Halloween party I went to well what was your costume come on who were you I was Professor X oh that's awesome it was the first time I started shaving my head completely and then I actually stuck with it that was uh, October of 98.
0: that was the origin right there
1: yeah yeah exactly and so then my buddy uh my buddy Dan who later uh, passed away unfortunately this is Dan Di Giacomo Dan De Giacomo yeah he was the beast old school beast. You know, before he got furry, if you really looked at our costumes, it wasn't much. My costume was basically shaving my head. And it, <laughs> his was, he took he took a blue sweatsuit, you know, sweatshirt and sweatpants and turned it into that old school, you know, X-Men uniform. But it worked. But, yeah, I don't have a lot. I'm mean, Some of the stuff I was I sold on eBay back in the day, oh, yeah. you know, like there was there was one, a glow in the dark, radioactive Homer Simpson. Mm, that was a hard to come by i guess and i remember seeing it i had taken it out of the box because i'm not one to keep things in the box i like to fold it or you know not necessarily play with it i guess but i mean nobody actually sees me play with action figures so you can't prove anything (laughs) i had taken the homer out of the box long before He, he was sitting on my desk you know and then I saw it was going for like 80 bucks on eBay or something. And at the time I was freelancing and broke and I was like, hey, 80 bucks. And I didn't have to pay anything for it. So it's probably worth more money nowadays because it's just kind of hard to come by.
0: Yeah, I bet. I think, yeah, Doug Goldstein called that out when we were interviewing him about being, yeah, a big one and an early one. So, yeah, not a lot of yeah, people had yeah. it.
1: Well, yeah. And Doug was another one of those talents that Garev got working on it. You know, I didn't do work a lot with Doug, but I did work on some stuff because he was doing you know, the special publication right. stuff. But I, haven't, I even got some freelance web design with Doug after I left because they were doing a toy magazine. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a, kind of a wish book sort of thing. And they needed a – they just needed a quick website. But it's funny though that so many of the, those wizard people uh, are now down here in Southern California. Yeah. I still have my first business card somewhere around here because that was kind of cool. That sort yeah, of – Oh, that's neat. The, with a little gear logo. I don't uh-huh. know why here, but I always thought that was kind of cool. That little logo that was on the on the door.
0: Yeah, I remember that being on the sidebar of the website, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was sort of the Wizard Entertainment logo. That was, I think they called it Wizard Entertainment Group, right? And that was the mm-hmm. uh, sort of the the overall logo for the whole company. I didn't, I didn't tell you about how I almost died in the front of Wizard though. Oh, let's hear about this. Yeah, you can just close
0: it out with your death-defying experience.
1: Yeah, the reason I thought of it because you mentioned that and the the logo, that logo, and that logo was on the window in the front door, and that reminded me of the the post you guys made a couple of weeks ago on your twitter and it was tj
0: uh, gave us that picture tj deach yeah
1: yeah and it was actually a few years after i had left i think it's because i think there was a date stamp you know i left in 2001 but it looked exactly the same as when i worked there and when the weather was good i would park right out front in the disabled parking spot there was a couple of them so there's a little ramp you go up to the front door and i got to work one day i was probably a little bit late (laughs) so i go to go up the ramp but I can't get up the ramp because there's a FedEx truck blocking it and it looked like the FedEx guy was inside so I just I waited in my wheelchair behind the FedEx truck and I'm waiting and I figured well he'll come out eventually and I see Dan Riley he headed up the research department and he was walking by and he he came out he's like hey Russ let me see if I can find the FedEx guy and I don't remember if the FedEx guy was in the office or if he was in his truck so dan got the fedex guy to pull his truck forward and this is one of those big step fans but he pulls like just past the curb cut so i start to push up the ramp dan comes back around behind me he's like let me give you a push and the truck starts rolling back and i'm trying to get out of the way but if you can imagine i'm perpendicular so i can't the the truck's backing up quick enough that i can't go up the ramp and i can't really back up because i'm sort of partially on the ramp at this point just the front wheels of my wheelchair and so dan sort of grabs the the handles on the back of the chair he sort of lifts up the back of the chair and is sort of pulling me sideways because that's the only way we can go to avoid this and dan's yelling and I'm banging on the back of the truck because at this point, Dan's doing all the work of trying to get me out of the way. Garab is pulling into and it started to park when this guy starts rolling back. So I think Garab saw like in his rear view mirror or something, like saw the truck rolling. He starts honking his horn. We're trying to get there at the guy's attention. And then at some point, Dan Riley can't really keep, it's kind of hard to describe, but he's like, imagine sort of lifting the back of the wheelchair up and the chair is rolling on the front casters. But by the time the truck finally stops, he's in this point now Pinning my chair between the bumper and the curb of the little sidewalk in front of the office, right? And I'm now I'm like sc- scraping down the sidewalk. And, and I'm thinking, any minute, any second now, I'm going to be under the truck right? And finally he stops. Dan and I are just like, we can't breathe. I mean, and he pulls forward and we're just sort of dumbfounded at this point. I guess what happened was he moved it forward, but didn't really fully put in park. It was just in neutral. So he wasn't really backing up, but you had the weight of this truck just bearing down. Dan and I were both lucky we didn't get hurt. Well, I think I think Dan did actually get hurt because I think he pulled his, his back. And in fact, if, if he hadn't been there to sort of pull me out of the way, i probably would have gotten knocked over and maybe drugged underneath the truck
0: man dan riley saving the day
1: dan riley he was the hero yeah so uh, i don't know what happened to the guy he didn't we don't know that he got any sort of uh discipline immediately but we did contact fedex because he actually left and they were like what can we talk to the driver and we're like, uh no he, he already left and they were like what <laughs> so yeah fedex was encouraged us like well go ahead and you know call the police so we get an accident report and everything and and then FedEx did actually buy me a new wheelchair. They made it right. But we later found out that guy did actually get fired because he caused like a, a five-car pileup on the on the New York State thruway a few months later. Justice
0: was served and a menace was removed. Wow, this was this was a, a dramatic way to close out this interview, Russ, I will tell you. So where can people find you online these days if they want to get in touch or tell you how much they appreciate your work?
1: It's uh, probably the easiest way is either on Instagram or Twitter Just at Russ Wooten, and that's uh, with one S, -S, R-U-S, W-O-O-T-O-N. And I've also got RussWooten.com. They can go there and get a link to some other things like I've got a a T-shirt shop on Threadless and some other links to the short film I directed last year and some other stuff that I'm working on. But yeah, most of the stuff that's up to date is going to be on Instagram
0: or Twitter. Well, thank you, Russ, for joining us. This really was a wild ride. And we want to thank you all for listening to this edition of The Wizard Files. Yes, we have many more interviews to come. They are all coming out of the woodwork, these wizard alumni with so many stories to tell. We thank you sincerely for taking the time to share them. So next time around, we actually have a wizard alumni who covered a lot of ground with different magazines, Rob Bricken, Some of you may even know him from the website Topless Robot and beyond. So we are excited to talk to Rob next time around. But again, if you are one of these magicians behind the scenes, were you writing? Were you designing? Were you, hey, working in accounting? We want to talk to the upstairs people too. If you have heard the stories and want to share your own, contact us at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram, or send us an email the old-fashioned way at WizardsComicsPod at gmail.com Of course, you could always check out what is going on on the Wizards Comics YouTube channel. Yes, we've got a new action figure Fury video and more to come. You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. We have three different tiers, so many exclusive videos and podcasts, including the 90s Super Cinema podcast where we are covering Batman Returns this month. Next time around, then we'll be talking about Meteor Man, Oh, Robert Townsend and Meteor Man, you know you want to get the details there. We have a lot of guests lined up for that, a lot of people that want to talk about it. But yes, we also invite you to visit the new WizardsComics.com. Yep, WizardsComics.com, where you can go back into the archives, check out all the past interviews for The Wizard Files, as well as our main episodes, mini-episodes, and bonus episodes, WizardsComics.com. And until next time, we're closing the files.